Well, good morning. I know, I know that uh, Moy's family is going to be so glad that that song is over. He has been practicing playing those spoons everywhere, and his family is probably fed up with it. How fun is that? You guys doing all right? Yeah, good. I love that. So, if, so we shouldn't tell you our sources, you know, because we got to make you think this is all kind of original ideas, right? So, I, but I'm going to tell you on source on that one. So, there is this lady. You can look her up on YouTube. She's called the Spoon Lady. The Spoon. Somebody knows this. You know the Spoon Lady? Isn't it great? Yeah. So the Spoon Lady and Chris Rodriguez recorded that song, and you might look it up because this lady's amazing. And it says she learned to play the spoons while she was hopping trains. And if you see her, you'll believe her. So anyway, it's just funny. So anyway, hey, we're going to get back to God. That's part of what we do around here. And, uh, and that's uh, for the church family. If you're a guest, don't worry about it. And that was a great song. I love that song. It's very fun. And uh, you ever, anybody ever seen the spoons played before? I actually have. You know, my mom's a hillbilly, so I've seen a lot of things and eaten a lot of fried food. Anyway, so um, I'm glad you're here. So this new series, we kind of came up with this because our last series was about show and tell, uh, showing and telling people about God's love in our life and what a difference it's made. And then uh, I thought, you know, let's follow it up with, uh, with Lost and Found because I want us to just relish, uh, kind of enjoy the fact that we are loved by God. That once you are found by God, um, it's just something to be reminded of constantly, to reaffirm in your life, and to just relish, to enjoy. And so uh, Lost and Found is going to be about what the wonderful benefits of just walking with, with Christ and, and what a difference it makes in our life. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so along with Lost and Found is, is another a little game my uh, grandkids still play, hide and seek. You guys know hide and seek. The problem is they love to play hide and seek with their Uncle Matt. And, and the problem with that is Uncle Matt is a really good hider. Uh, I don't know if that says anything about his character, but he's a really good hider. And at some point, they're running around my house, and the two little ones are trying to find Uncle Matt. And about the fifth time they run past Uncle Matt and not see him, I'm like, Matt, get found already. Really, seriously. They're little kids, you know? And, um, and, and uh, you know, there's something incredible in getting found. I love it more, though, when they go and hide, and he pretends that he can't find them. And then when he finally goes, oh, I see you. And they're like, ah, and they squeal. And they're so excited. It's so, it's, a, it's so much fun because it's not the hiding that's fun. It's the getting found. It's true in life. It's not the hiding that's fun. It's not the being lost that's fun. It's the getting found part that is so much fun. And today I want to talk about how much fun it is to be found. Because when you're found, you are loved. And, and those of us who have been found uh, it, it's just an incredible thing. So, so what's interesting is oftentimes our relationship with God, we think it is a game of hide and seek, and we wish God would quit hiding so much. <laughs> but I want to suggest to you that because of his word and because of creation and because of his work in the world, God's not hiding at all. It's us. <laughs> We're the ones who are lost or hiding. God is right there always, and he's not playing hide and seek with us at all. So um, I want to say to folks, get found. Or remember you've been found and live accordingly. What a powerful thing. So uh, there is this um, passage. It's found in Luke 15. And it is Jesus. And if you want to turn there, a Bible app or something. And, and, and it's Jesus. Um, and there are all these tax collectors and sinners. And then the religious types. And, and, and this sets up a wonderful confrontation in which Jesus tells some stories at, to clarify what the world is really about and what his mission is really about and what our mission should be about. So if you want to follow along in Luke 15, it begins with this. Uh, now the tax collectors 
and sinners. By the way, notice sinners is in quotation marks there. And so it's not the author, Luke, calling them sinners. It's the religious types calling these people sinners. So just to review for you, tax collectors in the ancient world were even more despised than they are today. And um, in the ancient world, the way they made their money was they would bid a certain region or district to the Romans and say, I can collect this much taxes. Whoever gave the highest bid got the job. And then the way they got paid was they would then extract more than that from their own people and they would keep the rest. Okay? So they, in essence, would just cheat their own people. There's some historical reference to an honest tax collector, one, and they built a statue to him. So uh, it's, it's not, not nice people. They didn't like them. They were cheats. They cheated their own people. Um, and they weren't allowed to be witnesses in, in, in Jewish kind of courts. They were just on the out side uh, in Jewish culture. And then sinners were those that the religious type deemed to be inappropriate to be hung out with. In other words, prostitutes or, or, or thieves or whatever it might be, the undesirables, if you will. So the word sinners here is actually the religious types looking down on uh, these people that Jesus seems to not understand who they are because he's letting them hang out with him. And so it goes on and, and it says this, but the Pharisees, religious types number one, and the teachers of the law, religious types number two, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <gasps> And so they're like, oh, how can he hang out with those people? Because remember, their whole religious thing is about keeping the rules. It's not about knowing God. It's not about relationship. It's not about love. It's about keeping the rules. And so Jesus uh, then responds with a parable in verse 4. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to, be repent, who not need to repent. Now, what's interesting about this is he's saying, yes, I came for the lost sheep. And heaven rejoices more over one of them repenting, those sinners, as you call them, than one of you who don't need to repent. Now, what he's not saying is that you don't need to repent. What he's saying is you think you don't need to repent. In other words, I came for those who are honest enough about their situation in life to know they need a change. Those of you religious types, you don't think you need to change. I came for the ones who are willing to hear, the ones who are willing to change. He's not saying that religious types don't need to repent. He's saying they don't know they need to repent. They're so kind of full of themselves and their religiosity. And so in this passage, we see this wonderful image of why Jesus came. He came to find those of us who are lost. Now, who's lost? Everybody's lost. At some point in our life, we're all lost. Uh, in Isaiah 53, 6, uh, for we like sheep, all of us, all of us have gone astray. Every one of us has gone astray. I don't even know what the word astray means, but I know what it means. You know what I'm saying? I don't know where it came from, but astray. It's like you find astray on your front door step, right? It's, that's the picture, actually. It's all of us are out kind of fending for ourselves, trying to make it through without having a home, a real home. We are strays, in essence. All of us have taken a bad turn at some point, got off track. It's called sin. Every one of us has done it. And so he came for those. And, and so how is it that, we, that the religious types couldn't understand why Jesus came? They thought the whole religion thing was about keeping the rules. Jesus is saying, no, it's about being changed by relationship with God because of love. Why did the shepherd go after the sheep? Because he loved them. He cared for them. That's, and, and so who are the sheep? We are. So uh, 
uh, on Thursday night, we had a little service, a little short service, uh, just to pray for people and try to bring comfort to folks who have been, um, who've been um, uh, affected by the shooting last week and terrible. Some, some, many of our families have had um, uh, terrible things happen. And, and, uh, and so uh, I'd already kind of um, chosen this topic for this weekend, uh, but I wanted to talk about, for some reason, I feel like I should talk about the 23rd Psalm. And uh, on Thursday night. And so I went back and got an old book that, that I love. It's my favorite book about the 23rd Psalm. It's by Philip Keller, a former shepherd. And so he talks about what the people who understood this, for example, the 23rd Psalm written by David, who had been a shepherd, would actually be talking about, not just kind of superficially, but really gaining the picture. And, and, and reading that, I, I reread that, and then I gained some insights on this parable that Jesus told. 100 sheep, kind of an average flock in that day, and people would have looked out on the hillsides outside the cities and seen... And so they would understand this. He said, he told an interesting story in there. He talked about as a shepherd, he would come out every morning, he would count his sheep. It's interesting that the sheep are counted because that's what a shepherd would do. How are you going to know if one's missing? You count the sheep. You have a hundred, you're going to have to count. And so he says every morning as a shepherd, he would come out and count his sheep. And if there was one not there, he would go and look. He would look for evidence that a predator had gotten it or more likely that it had wandered off and gotten itself in trouble. And he said one of the most interesting things that would happen, and would happen often, is the sheep would wander off and get and become cast, a cast sheep. I don't know where that phrase comes from. But what it is, is, is that this big kind of woolly sheep would lay down to rest and then it would kind of stretch out and would lean over a little too far or if there's a little like a depression in the ground it would lean over a little too far and end up on its back and because it would it would frighten itself it would start kicking frantically and going crazy trying to right itself which would only make it worse because it would end up completely upside down unable to get back on its feet like like a turtle right and he said, and this was very dangerous because of several things. Uh, one, it'd be, uh, and kicking frantically usually made it worse. He said, one, predators, uh, you know, sheep are easy prey to begin with, and now it's off by itself and it's stuck, and so predators can, can come and attack it. Um, uh, another thing he said is that on a hot day, if this happened on a hot sunny day, heat, uh, because of all the wool, heat could kill the animal pretty quickly. And then another one he said was that as it lays there, it can't ruminate part of its digestive system. And so what happens is because it's not able to process what it's eaten properly, it begins to um, send toxins in its, into, its, into its bloodstream because it's not processing it right. And, and then the last thing that begins to happen is it begins to go numb. And, it's, and, because it, and it starts with the extremities, it's, its legs, and it, and it begins to go numb until, until it dies. And he says, and so when you find a, a sheep that is cast, you have to grab it. You have to sit it upright, but it's not enough to put it upright. You have to hold it until it can get the blood flowing again and get back on its feet, so to speak, right? And so you hold it there. It's been traumatized, and its body uh, needs to normalize, and you've got to hold it or carry it until the blood flow works again. Now, in light of Philip Keller's story, isn't that interesting that he talks about one, we'll go up and he said, every morning I would look and if there was one missing, I'd leave the rest of the sheep out in the open pasture and I would go find and, and bring that one back. That's exactly the picture Jesus is painting here. I thought, I thought the parallel is so close uh, to the point almost of, of absurdity, but that is so close because I've known times in my life where I was pretty much flat on my back and I could kick and I could scream and I could, and I could freak out and it didn't help. And I've had times when there was toxic, there were toxic thoughts in my brain <laughs> where I was so panicked that I began to think really wrong thoughts and I, they're, 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 they're kind of toxic thoughts. And, and, and there have been times where I was so vulnerable that, that 
there could have been a, a predator or two bring temptation into my life that could have completely derailed me. I've had those moments. And I've had those moments where I felt God come and put me back right, but not just let me figure it out, but hold me and walk with me or even carry me until I began to realize who I am in Him, that I am a child of God, I'm loved by God, and, and remember the direction I'm traveling. I think this is a wonderful picture. I think Jesus' word pictures are, are brilliant. And we lose a lot of them because we don't live in an agrarian society. We don't know any shepherds probably. And I just, I think there's such a powerful picture. And the point of that passage is to poke at the religious types and say, you don't get it. I'm not here to be a rule keeper and to condemn these people because they're terrible. I'm here to love them back onto their feet to love them till they get their feet underneath them. They begin to live the way they were created to live. I am here to gently pick them up. I think that's a powerful picture of what happens. And if we ever forget that God loves us and that this whole relationship with God through Jesus Christ is about love, we miss the point. We begin to be pharisaical. We become like the religious types. It's about keeping the rules. And Christianity is awful if you're about keeping the rules. It's awful. It is no fun. But if it's about love, it's about being loved with a different kind of love, an unconditional love, the kind of love that comes searching for you kind of love, then it is different. There's a whole different motivation, a whole different set of outcomes. There there are three kind of conditions we can find ourselves when it comes to God's love. One in this sheep metaphor, one is just lost, just lost. And the truth is all of us have been lost. Every one of us have been lost at some point. And, and, and so it's interesting because lost is a biblical term, but, but growing up for me, lost was usually a reference to for eternity, like the heaven versus hell thing. And, 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 and that's true. But it, when I was not uh, in relationship with Christ and I wouldn't, I wouldn't cooperate and be found, I was lost in that moment, not just for eternity. I was lost in that moment. I didn't know why I was on this earth. I didn't know why I was, I was reaching for anything that would, would give me some pleasure, give me some comfort, give me something. And usually the next day I regretted it, but I would, I was lost in that moment. I didn't have direction. I didn't know where I was supposed to be or who I was supposed to be. Christ came for those who are lost because he loves us, not to condemn us, not to beat us down, but to love us. Here's what it says in Luke 19, 10, where the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what's interesting about this is that that phrase right there is actually in response to another time when the religious leaders came after him. And it's found earlier in chapter 19, just a few chapters later than the one we we read a moment ago. And it's a story in which Zacchaeus, another tax collector, um, we we only know a few things about Zacchaeus. We know that he was a tax collector and he was wealthy, so he was dishonest, so he cheated his own people. He was unliked by them, and he was short which may explain the other two. I don't know. Psychologists can deal with that. Um, but, uh, and so he, Jesus is coming into Jericho and he climbs a tree and, and Jesus sees him and goes, let's go to your house for lunch. And all the religious like, oh, religious people are, oh, he's going to tax all your house for lunch. Ah, and they wouldn't even touch. They wouldn't even let. It was so severe. They wouldn't even let their clothing touch a tax collector in that day because they, they were so much better than them. And so here's Jesus not only going to his house, but eating his food. How can you do that? And in response, Jesus says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. He knows he's lost. You won't admit you're lost. He knows he's lost. And then he says before, today, salvation has come to this man's house, for he too is the son of Abraham. In other words, I have come for him. What a powerful thing. There's no one beyond the love of God. 
We're all lost, but there is no one beyond the love of God. You have not done anything. You have not been anywhere. You have not seen anything that would put you beyond God's love, and it's life-changing experience of it. Nothing. That's the point of the tax collectors and the sinner, is that Christ came for all of us. Nobody is beyond his love. It's a powerful thing to admit that you're lost. I, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with GPS. I mean, I appreciate it as a convenience, but it somewhat robbed me of my manhood. Because back in the day, some of you don't know this, time existed where you didn't have cell phones with maps on them. Um, but in those days, men were men. And we could wander around endlessly claiming we weren't lost. And there was no proof otherwise. And now when I am less than sure of my direction, I sense out of the corner of my eye my wife pulling the phone out. And I know I'm about to be emasculated once again. Because she is about to show that I'm lost. I, as a man, hate to admit I'm lost. I mean, if it ever happened, I would hate to admit that I had, had gotten lost. I would hate that. We as human beings hate to admit we're lost. Some of us just don't recognize it. We don't know what it feels like to be found. We think that this dog-eat-dog, unloving, difficult, fight-your-way-through-the-day kind of world we live in is the way and the only way it can be. And yet Christ came to show us something else. You see, the impact on Zacchaeus was so powerful that he saw there was another way. It wasn't cheating and stealing. It was, that wasn't the way. And at one point, he just jumps up and goes, okay, okay, anybody I've cheated, I'm going to give you four times. Now I'm thinking, how does he give back four times more than he took? But he wasn't worried about the math. He was worried about a different kind of life. He said, I'm going to give back four times what I've cheated anybody. And people are lining up outside his door, I'm sure. And yet, that's what happens when you see there's another way to live. When you realize you've been lost and that to be found is to be loved with a kind of love you've never experienced before. So there are those who are lost. There are those who are hiding, or at least think they're hiding. They kind of know that something isn't right, but they don't want to deal with it. Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they were hiding from God after you know, she fed him the apple. It's all her fault, basically. And um, after Eve gave, uh, gave him the fruit, uh, they were hiding. And God comes walking to the garden. He says, where are you? God knew where they were. He wanted them to acknowledge where they were, that they were trying to hide. And it's so silly to hide from God's love. But the problem is, is that love and hiding don't go together. They're not compatible. You can't hide and be loved. Christ came to love. Yes, there were, there, there were severe uh, repercussions in the garden, and yet Christ came to repair that brokenness, that gap there, and to love us. But some of us have become so accustomed to hiding that we can't allow ourselves to be loved. When you're in hiding, someone may care about you deeply and, and honestly and say, I love you, and you think to yourself, you say back, I love you, but you think to yourself, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If they really knew the truth about me, they wouldn't love me. Because we've been hiding. So let's, you're saying, well, I don't, I don't know if I believe. Okay, let's just, for a moment, let's just play a game here. Let's say that electro, uh, 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 the electronic technology and so on uh, progress to the point where we can hook electrodes to your brain and watch everything you've ever thought on that screen right there. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? No, that'd be terrible. You'd lose all your friends. Your spouse would leave you. Somebody might shoot you in the parking lot or something. I don't know, something bad would happen, Right? Because we don't want people seeing it. Because we're used to the wrong kind of love. 
because we are used to a kind of love that says, I love you if, I love you when, I love you because. I love you if you'll love me back and you treat me right. I love you because you have this or you do this. or I love you when you love me. But here's what's interesting is Jesus has seen, God has seen that movie and he loves you. Now you're tempted to say he loves you anyway or he loves you in spite of that movie, but don't say that because he loves you. That movie of your life, your thoughts, your actions has no bearing on his love for you whatsoever. He loves you, period. And the purest love that we have, I think, is the love of a parent, their mother. But even that wavers a little bit when those kids are, you know, pouring the milk on the floor at three in the morning. That love wavers just, just a tad, unnoticeably mostly, but it, it, let's be honest. God loves you, period. And here's the problem. As long as we're trying to hide from God, which you can't, but as long as we're trying to hide from God, we can't even accept his love. Well, God, if you really knew, well, maybe you kind of know, but I don't want to acknowledge that you know, so I'm going to try to hold my distance from you, God. And we live our lives hiding from God and from others. What a powerful thing to just know and be known. Love is to be known and loved, period, just loved. What it's like to open our lives and be honest about this. I have seen guys carry secrets with them for decades, decades. And then finally, when it comes pouring out, usually not of their own volition, and they finally own up to it, all of a sudden, for the first time, they can experience real love. They find that not all of their friends abandon them. Some kind of lean into that and start loving them for real now that they're open to it and helping them recover from that hidden thing they've been, they've been keeping uh, out of sight. Some of them find out that even their spouses, who are the one who's most hurt by it, actually embrace them and say, yeah, that was bad. We're going to have to recover from this. But now I, the real you is here and exposed, and we can have a real love. Maybe for the first time, I won't feel that distance that I've always felt because you can't love and hide at the same time. And some of us spend our whole lives hiding from God and others, thinking that if God knew the truth, he wouldn't love us. Just like if others knew the truth, they wouldn't love us. And you're wrong on the first account, and you may be wrong on the second account. In my life, I, I, uh, I've told you this story before, but one of the most powerful events in my life is that at one point I, I acknowledged to my wife, not that long ago, in the last 10 years, that uh, I carried with me an irrational fear. I think it was irrational. I'm still not sure. <laughs> and and it, was, it was not debilitating, but on occasion it was. And so one day we were, we were together and I think we we're on vacation or something, and I decided to go for it. And I said, honey, I just need to tell you something crazy about me. And she's going, like, like I don't know crazy things about you already. And, and I said, honey, this, and I told her this thing. And she, and it was, she didn't laugh at me, and she didn't get mad for being dumb. She said, yeah, okay, well, if that happened, we'll handle it. I said, no, no, you don't understand. And I said it again because she didn't understand. She said, no, I understood the first time, and God's always been good to us, and we've made it through lots of things before, and if something like that ever happened, we'd, we'd handle it with God's help. End of, end of discussion. I remember we were driving the car and I, and I couldn't dare look at her the whole time because I thought she was going to mock me because <laughs> I deserved it. But, and I just remember going, oh my gosh, this thing has no hold on me anymore. It's not real. It's not true. I, I was released from that at that moment because I stopped hiding. I, um, we're, we're doing this rooted uh, class. If you didn't sign up, you, you need to sign up next spring, because uh, the guys in my group, I think, I think we're kind of coming out of hiding and we're kind of establishing a manly biblical kind of love, <laughs> and, uh, and and understanding that coming out of hiding is how you experience love. 
And some of us need to do that. So how do you do that? How do you come out of hiding? Let me give you, let me give you some things real quick. Um, now the first one is to uh, be convinced. For in Paul, Paul has walked with, with the Lord for a while now. And in Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, For I am convinced... I am convinced. Convinced is knowing what you know. It's not a blind knowing. It's a having experienced enough that you know it. My wife and I, we, we've been married a long time. We know stuff. We have a corporate knowledge, if you will. We know stuff. I am convinced about certain things about her. And, uh, and, and I, I, want, I love it. Uh, so convinced says this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life. By the way, when we face difficult tragedies like we did in the last week, knowing, convinced, I know that I know that even death can't separate me from the love of God. To be absent from this earth is to be present with the Lord, and I will be fully enveloped in His love. No doubts, no questions. It will be real, and it will be true, and I am convinced of that. Not just because of what I read, first of all, because I read, but secondly, because of my experience with God. And I know His character. I am convinced of that. It changes the way we deal with things. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. First, we must be convinced. We must walk with Him and experience this and know that we know. And then trusting Him. It says in Ephesians 3, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, that means, again, a loving relationship with God may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. You are convinced, and now you grasp. But when you grasp, you don't just kind of touch, you hang on to that. And sometimes that's all you have to hang on to is God's love. When there are no other answers to be found, you are hanging on to God's character and the love that you know he has for you. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To be convinced and to grasp God's love is what carries you through those times. And then to be faithful to that. Here's what it says in 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. What he's saying is there can only be one thing you love the most. There can only be one thing you love, the, and there's only one love worthy of being at the top of that list. And it's the only love that won't let you down. Anything else, we use the word love. It's so, we have one word, love. In the Greek, they have love, sexual love. They have love, familial love, family love. And then they have agape, unconditional love. I mean, we could talk about love. I love pizza. And by the way, that's true, I do love pizza. I'm from Chicago, not New York pizza. You don't fold it. Any pizza you can fold is not real pizza. It's got to be about that thick and leave terrible indigestion. That's pizza. I mean, that's real deal, okay? I mean, I love pizza. The problem is that anything, we use the word love, we throw it around. But the truth is that we assign love to the highest priority. We just do it, we're inculcated with what it could be. You love your car, you love your pizza, you fall in love. And, and, and if we assign anything but unconditional agape love from God as the most important love, the highest love of our life, we are going to be disappointed. We just are. You say, well, I don't know what that means. I, I'm going to challenge you with something. All right. So... Um, I want you to think of your two favorite love songs right now. Go. Two favorite love songs. Always and forever. Just to help you out, get you started. Um, now I want you to think. Now I want to ask you, in that song, is that song realistic or is it hyperbole? Is it, is it even possible that my wife could love me always and forever? You know me. A, she's not going to live always and forever on this earth as my wife. So A, it's not true. And B, 
you know me. So she couldn't do it anyway. It's not real. The desire for a love that is always and forever is real. But it's not my wife. See, what has happened in our society, we have raised the level of romance to be the thing we all think we need. How many 18-year-old boys do you think, if I could just have that really hot girl and we could just, you know, be together and my life's going to be perfect. I got bad news for you. (laughs) Even if she loves you back and you get married, it's going to suck for a few years. (laughs) Really. No, seriously, it is. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. And we're all laughing at you. But 36 years later, it's pretty good but it's still not everything I need. You see, the depth of the kind of love I need is too much for any one person or thing. There is nothing in all of creation that can meet those deepest needs of love that I have. And to think that a romantic lover is going to meet those needs, she's just not capable of it. She's a human being. Only an eternal God who loves me unconditionally for unexplainable reasons other than his own character, only that kind of love can meet those needs. And yet again and again, we go looking for love and all the... What if today you came in and, and somebody handed you a note at the door and said, by the way, 37.5% uh, of the seats in the room are going to collapse when you sit on them today. What would you do? Now, see, today you just walked in, you made somebody move out of your normal seat, and you plopped down. <laughs> you just parked it without thinking about it because you knew the chair is not going to collapse. We've never had a chair collapse ever. We've not had one. You know that. But what if you knew that 37? Well, then what if you knew that 99.999% of the love's possibilities in the world were going to fail you? <laughs> Wouldn't you be careful where you put the weight of your love, your ultimate love? Wouldn't you put it in someone who can actually carry it? That's what being loved is about. That's what being found is about, is knowing that I can place all the hopes and dreams of my love in him. So you could be lost, you could be hiding, or you can be a lover. (laughs) A lover of God and a lover of others. And when we come to experience the love of God in powerful ways, it changes us. It changes our priorities. It changes our loves. It changes the outcomes of our life. I want to share a story with you today. It's a friend of mine, Steve. I've known Steve for 20-some years. And I've known Steve in each of these stages. And, uh, and he volunteered to share his story with you today. Watch what happens as a progression of his life goes on and how he ended up where I think we should all end up. Listen. I, I got my first wife pregnant at 15 years old. And asked her to marry me, and we got married and went on to have a family and did the best we could. But both using daily, and it just was not good, not good for the kids. I remember asking for help, and the only place I knew to turn was God. And at two and a half years sober, I relapsed for about seven hours. And I did some damage in that seven hours. And then exactly 90 days later, my oldest son was killed in a car accident. That's been almost 27 years ago. And I know God didn't take my son. It was just free will, and and I miss him. But um, I also know he's safe. I got remarried a second time, and uh, that's actually what changed, uh, brought me to my knees. After 21 years, she just up and left. Still don't know why exactly, other than I had to let her go. I'm grateful for all of it. Um, And I will say this about the kids. You know, I was a single dad for some time, but they were, um, they saved me, is really what happened. Before CR, just a broken individual lost. I um, just became very complacent and just not doing anything for God. I wasn't really ever a really bad dad, but I, 
I'm still just a sinner who ignored God and, and discounted it. And I can't do that anymore. So I started coming at 5.30 and I asked Moy if there was any way I could help him. He said, yeah, I'll show up here next week at 5.30. So I didn't show up. I don't think I even came that next week. He says to me something like, yeah, I uh, <laughs> waited for you at 5.30 or I was here at 5.30, I didn't see you. And I, without even skipping a beat, I said something like, oh yeah, my gopher passed away or something and I couldn't be here and I walked away. And, and it just didn't feel right. I was, and the lie was eating at me, so I, I came back and I, I don't know what I said to him, but I, I admitted that I had lied and I said, I'm sorry. And I said, I'll be here next week at 5.30. You know, I, I really thought that I would get healed by coming here. I thought that somebody would be able to fix me or something. I wasn't sure what it looked like. But it didn't come the way I expected. It just didn't. I started stacking chairs and just doing whatever I could. And um, it's been amazing. Just incredibly grateful that the doors were open. And that I can come here and serve. This is home for me. I started having some problems with my arm. I felt like my arm was broken and I went to the doctor and so they did a CAT scan on me. I could tell when the guy walked in the room. He couldn't even look me in the eye. I knew something bad was coming. And, uh, and he said that I had uh, stage four cancer, lung cancer. The best that they could hope for um, was if I got chemotherapy that I could maybe get a year. But here's the amazing thing. There has been uh, people praying for me everywhere and it's unbelievable and it's overwhelming the love I've experienced in this last year has been absolutely amazing I have more love than I can tolerate and I don't know if God's gonna heal me I just don't know I know this I know that if I don't make it I know where I'm going I don't feel like my work is done here, whatever that is. Unfinished business, if you will. I don't know if I've helped lead anybody to Christ. I don't know if anything I've ever done or been a part of has, has influenced them, but I, I would like to be part of helping one. And then I say one's not enough. Because I have this image of this infinite banquet table. Every last soul needs to be sick. And if God was kind enough to allow me to do that, then that's what I hope for. However long it takes. As I said, I've known Steve for a very long time and I've watched him be lost. I've watched him hide for a lot of years. And then I've watched him be changed. And in the end, his focus has gone from him to him to others. That's what love does to you. It takes your eyes off of you and what I want in this moment and reminds me that I am loved and whatever happens, I'm good. I'm going to be okay. Whether he gets healed or doesn't get healed, he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to heaven. 
And now his biggest joy would be to take somebody else with him, to invite his friends and loved ones to go and spend eternity there. That's how a heart changes when it's found, when it's loved. Today, if you're lost or you're hiding, I just want to invite you to be found. (laughs) Just be found. And today, if you know that you're found, I want you to rejoice in that. And I want you to share that with somebody because it's the greatest thing in the world to be found and to be loved. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for Steve and I thank you for the incredible work you've done in his life. And Lord, I pray for his healing. But more than I pray that his deepest wish would come true, that there would be others, maybe strangers in this room who would be found because he was willing to share his very difficult journey. Lord God, thank you for finding me. Thank you for finding those of us who are willing to be found. Thank you for the love that sustains me every day and that, Lord God, changes the point of my life. And Lord, I pray that there will be no one leave this room who doesn't know for a fact that they are found, who isn't certain, who hasn't grasped onto your love because we don't need to, because you came to seek and save every one of us. Thank you for doing that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.